Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 4th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part two of our commentary on the epistles of John. This is titled, The Propitiation for Sin. If you haven't guessed already, I am going to keep hammering on the ridiculous Trinity doctrine. It's ridiculous in the face of the fulfillment of prophecy and the laws of Yahweh, which I hope we shall see this evening. In our opening presentation in this commentary, discussing 1 John chapter 1, we saw the Apostle repeat particular themes from his Gospel in relation to the nature of Christ, that, among other things, he is the Word of Life, and he is the true light come into the world. Doing that, we used an accompanying illustration, which seeks to describe the various ways in which Yahweh, the invisible God, chose to manifest himself in the world. Among these are the burning in the bush, which appeared to Moses, the pillars of cloud and fire, which led the Israelites out of Egypt, the rock in the desert, and finally, as the man, Yahshua Christ, who is also the Son. Sadly, there are Trinitarians, who also call themselves Christian Identity, but who do not realize that the concept of the Trinity is contrary to the truth of God. It is not that Yahweh God became or made himself into a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire, but that he used the pillars of smoke and fire as signs indicating that he was present with the children of Israel to lead them out of Egypt. So, from the perspective of man, we read in Exodus chapter 13 that Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. Likewise, in Exodus chapter 3, while the burning in the bush was initially called an angel, an angel is only a messenger or a vehicle through which a message is transmitted. And an angel does not have to be a sentient being, even as the elements of creation may be used by God to send a message. So after Moses wrote that an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire, as it is in the King James Version. In that same place, we then read in verse 4, And when Yahweh saw that he, meaning Moses, turned aside to see, to see the burning bush, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, God called unto him, not some angel, and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. It was not an angel who spoke to Moses, but Yahweh God himself, described as being in the flames of the bush. 
Therefore, the flames themselves were the angel, as they were employed to send Moses a message to attract the attention of Moses and to represent the presence of the invisible God. Perhaps Trinitarians may imagine Moses to have been speaking to some man with wings and a white garment sitting in the flames in a bush, but that is not what the scripture implies. Likewise, the rock in the desert, of which Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he said, Now, I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers, meaning Paul's fathers and the fathers of the Corinthians, were all under the cloud, and all had passed through the sea, and all up to Moses had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea. And all had eaten of the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Trinitarians claimed that this was some sort of pre-incarnate Christ, a concept which they strive to find in an assortment of disparate scriptures, none of which stand as proof of their claims, not one. Rather, Paul of Tarsus and the other apostles knew nothing of a trinity, and neither did Moses, because the concept is not found in Scripture. The trinity concept was developed later by so-called church fathers, who were much more interested in worldly wisdom, in Plato and Aristotle, than they were in Scripture. In the writings of Clement of Alexandria, for example, who was a follower of Plato. He actually cited passages from Plato which he believed were allusions to the Trinity, upholding them as authorities, supporting the concept as if to give it greater credibility. Furthermore, Paul of Tarsus was not making a novel association where he wrote that they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Moses also wrote of that rock, and it is found in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The song opens with the beckoning for Israel to listen to his words. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, and the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of Yahweh. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Then a little further on, where Moses admonished the children of Israel for going astray, we read in verse 15, Deuteronomy chapter 32, but Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. 
Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. And a little further on in verse 18. Of the rock that begat thee. So the rock of his salvation is also the rock that begat him. The rock that begat thee art unmindful and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when the and when Yahweh saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and daughters. The epithet Jeshurun or Jesurun, as it's spelled in Isaiah, means the upright one. And it is apparently used as a symbolic name for Israel in their ideal state of obedience to God. So it also appears in that manner in Isaiah chapter 44, and twice more here in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And finally, a little further on in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read in verse 30, How should one chase a thousand? And two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them, and Yahweh had shut them up. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Then, in reference to the heathen nations, a few verses later, it says, For Yahweh shall judge his people, and repent himself for his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left, and he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat of the fat of their sacrifices, and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you, and be your protection. Throughout these passages of Deuteronomy, the rock in the desert is said to be Yahweh God. More specifically, it is said to be Yahweh, not simply God. Yahweh, who is the only God of Israel. The same Moses who wrote the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 also wrote these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear ye, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. And thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Yet Paul of Tarsus attested that the rock in the desert was Christ. And of course, Paul must have been familiar with the Song of Moses. So in his epistle, did Paul contradict Moses? Yet the same Paul wrote in his epistle to the Ephesians, that there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, not three, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, God being equated to the Father. There's no part of God that's reserved exclusively for the Son without the Father, or a separate person in the Holy Spirit without the Son or the Father. It's ridiculous. God is Yahweh. God is the Father. There is no other. Paul continues, But unto every one of us is grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ.
That word for Lord, where Paul said there is one Lord. Kyrios was used by Paul throughout his epistles in reference to both Yahshua Christ and to Yahweh, God the Father. But neither was Paul contradicting himself. The same Paul wrote that Christ is the fullness of the divinity bodily in his epistle to the Colossians. And also that Christ is, in reference to God, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person in his epistle to the Hebrews. Christ is not the image of his own person. He is the image of the person of God the Father. Because he is the person of God the Father. The only way to reconcile the words of Moses and those of Paul is to understand that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh God the Father incarnate. And that the only pre-incarnate Christ is the one God of Israel who is Yahweh God the Father. The physical body of Christ is an earthly temple for God the Father. In John chapter 2, as the adversaries of Christ sought a sign from him, we read, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. Christ is also the temple of God in the future city of God, as we read in Revelation chapter 22, where John describes the city and says, <clears throat> And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Of course, God is invisible, so Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, He that has seen me has seen the Father. So when you imagine that Revelation prophecy in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You can't expect to see two men. You are only going to see the Lamb because Yahweh God is invisible. The Lamb is the image of his person. Christ the Lamb, the image of the person of God, as Paul described him in Hebrews chapter 1, is also the fulfillment of a promise made by Yahweh in Ezekiel chapter 37, where he said, and this is immediately following the prophecy of the two sticks being made back into one, representing Israel and Judah. Moreover, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people and the heathen shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel 
when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. So in direct reference to Christ, we read in Revelation chapter 21, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This does not contradict the fact that God is invisible, as Christ is the image of the person of God. So Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1 and attested that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For all, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, if Christ is before all things, how could God the Father be before Christ? And again, by saying this, Paul was not contradicting Moses, who wrote in Exodus chapter 20, For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Rather, all things having been created both by him and for him, Yahshua Christ assumes both roles as the creator and as the principal heir to his creation, which is Yahweh God as both the Father and the Son. Yahweh God dwelling with man as Yahshua Christ was the plan of God from the beginning. But because Christ was slain, was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as we read in Revelation chapter 13. It was also known by God from the beginning that he would have to offer himself as a propitiation for their sins. The Trinitarians would insist that some God separate from the Father, a different person, whom they imagined to be God the Son, had died to propitiate the sins of the children of Israel. But how could that be? How could a single son die to propitiate the sins of an entire people, regardless of the status of that son? Why or how could one man be slain purposely to propitiate the sins of another? All of this is contrary to the law of God. All of this imagines that Yahweh God would disregard his law. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, we read, The father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. That's the law. If Christ, the Son, had died on behalf of the Father, that does not fulfill the law. And if he had died on behalf of the Father's wife, the mother, which is the nation of the children of Israel, neither would that fulfill the law. Both predicaments are contrary to the law. But Christ came to fulfill the law, 
as he himself attested, and not to destroy it, and to release Israel from the penalties of the law, which demanded death. As Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 10, for Christ is the end or fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. For this to be true, it seems that we must believe how Christ had fulfilled the law and not merely that he had fulfilled it. Therefore, we should be able to discern from Scripture just how his death had fulfilled the law, thereby making him a propitiation for the sins of the children of Israel. As Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 52, speaking in reference to the sins and the resulting captivities of Israel. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. While we had discussed aspects of the opening verses of 1 John chapter 2 in our last presentation, here we shall repeat those verses so that we may discuss them even further. My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not do wrong. And if one should do wrong, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ, and he is a propitiation on behalf of our errors, yet not for ours only, but for the whole society. Of course, we explained the last week that that society must have been limited to the children of Israel as only they ever had the law. Paul of Tarsus used different language, but drew a similar analogy where he compared Moses, the mediator of the Sinai covenant, to Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. And he said, but now has he obtained, meaning Christ, a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. The new covenant, as we learn in Luke chapter 1 and elsewhere, was established on the unconditional promises which God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where the Sinai covenant was based on the agreement of Israel, the promises of Israel to keep the law, something which they continually failed to do. So yes, the promises of God are better than the promises made by men. As we have already explained, the verb hamartano is to do wrong here. And the noun hamartia is errors, being plural. Both terms may have been translated as sin. And once again, just as John had attested in chapter 1 of this epistle, if we walk in the light and confess our sins, then they shall be remitted, or perhaps forgiven, by Christ. The word which I translate remit is usually translated as forgive in the King James Version. 
But here, where we see that when Christians sin, they have an advocate in Christ who is the propitiation for their sin. So we must ask, how did the death of Christ make a propitiation for sin? The law rejects the idea that one man may die in place of another for his sins. Since if a man commits an offense which is worthy of death, then he must die for his own sin, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This we read again. As Amaziah ascended to be king of Judah upon the death of Joash, his father. There it says, and I believe this is from Second Chronicles. And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that he slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. But the children of the murderers he slew not, according unto that which is written in the book of the Lord of Moses, wherein Yahweh commanded, saying, The father shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Yahshua Christ had no sin, but he was put to death for the sins of all Israel. Yet how does that absolve Israel of sin under the law? There is no such law which explains or provides for that situation. None. In Romans chapter 6, Paul of Tarsus gave a lengthy discourse attesting that the death of Christ had cleansed his intended readers of their sin. And for that reason, they should sin no more, since continuing in sin kept them in bondage to sin, where, departing from sin, one has liberty in Christ. Where there is a chapter break, which Paul himself did not make, and a new chapter begins in Romans chapter 7, the subject has not changed, and Paul continues to discuss the relationship between himself and his intended readers and sin and the law through the end of that chapter. In the opening verses of that chapter, Romans chapter 7, Paul discusses the relationship of a wife to a husband who is subject to the law of her husband. He is not changing the subject. Yahweh God was a husband to the children of Israel. He imposed the law of the husband upon Israel. And that was done in a ceremony at Sinai, where Israel accepted the terms and conditions. And Israel as a nation was described as the wife or the bride of Yahweh. But Israel was divorced by Yahweh on account of her adultery, as we read in Hosea chapter 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms from out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts. This is evident again 
in the very promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. Under the law, the penalty for adultery is death. This is found in Leviticus chapter 20. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. For this, the children of Israel, who had persistently engaged in fornication in Baal worship in the pagan groves and temples, were collectively under the penalty of death. Yet in that same place where a new covenant was promised, we read in verse 35 of Jeremiah chapter 31. Thus saith Yahweh, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. So while all Israel was under penalty of death, so long as there was a sun, moon, and stars, Yahweh promised that they would live. However, Christ came to fulfill the law, So he had to do that in a manner by which the law was kept, or God himself is a hypocrite. That is what Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 7, precisely how Yahweh had fulfilled the law so that Israel could live. So Paul wrote, Are you ignorant, brethren? And then there's a parenthetical remark. I speak to those who know the law. That the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. And what's good for the man is good for the woman. So we see. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living She would be labeled an adulteress, and adultery demands death under the law. She would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. All those strange gods and those foreign nations which the children of Israel had joined themselves to. The foreign nations being described as the lovers of the children of Israel in the words of the prophets. But if the husband should die, She is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. It's that simple. That is why Paul is explaining this, because that's how Israel is permitted to live. Why is Paul mentioning this in the middle of a lengthy discourse on man and his relationship to sin and the law? 
Because this is how Yahweh freed Israel the adulteress from the judgment of the law, which insists that the white be put to death. Yahweh, Yahweh himself had chosen to die in place of the children of Israel, thereby freeing the wife from the law of the husband. The resurrected Yahshua Christ, the Son of God, could then redeem Israel as kinsman redeemer. So Paul continued and wrote in the verses which follow, that consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of fault or sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. Knowing, and Paul was teaching this, knowing that Christ died on their behalf in this manner, the children of Israel should count themselves dead on account of him. So Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that they should be baptized or immersed in his death. Since it is they who should have died for their sins rather than God. Yahshua Christ is the redeemer of Israel. Yet Yahweh God insisted in Isaiah that he is their only redeemer. In Isaiah chapter 44, the word of Yahweh, <coughs> excuse me, said, Thus saith Yahweh the king of Israel, and his redeemer Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So there can't be another God in the Trinity besides Yahweh. Then again in chapter 54, for thy maker is thine husband, Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. That's not a separate person. That's defining the maker as Yahweh of hosts and the redeemer as the Holy One of Israel, who is Yahweh of hosts. It's not two people there, it's one, described two different ways. And it goes on to say, the God of the whole earth shall he be called, not shall they be called. There is a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 59. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh. We cannot imagine this Redeemer in Isaiah chapter 59, to be a different Redeemer than that spoken of in Isaiah chapters 44 and 54, which we have just cited here. There is only one God, and according to the law, the nation of Israel, being the wife, can only have one husband. While there are other relevant passages, we will cite one more from Isaiah chapter 63 the words of the children of Israel, the words attributed to the children of Israel in captivity. Doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us and 
Israel acknowledges us not, thou, O Yahweh, art our Father, our Redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. So once again, Yahweh the Father is also the Redeemer, and there is no other. Yahshua Christ, being Yahweh incarnate, could die for the children of Israel, freeing them from the law. But he could also redeem and betroth Israel, being the bridegroom, as he was described by John the Baptist in John chapter 3. Ye yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, is therefore fulfilled. Speaking of Christ as the bridegroom. In Luke chapter 5, Christ himself had described his relationship with his people as that of a bridegroom, where his adversaries had contended with him. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees. But thine, meaning yours, to Christ, speaking to Christ, but yours eat and drink. And he said unto them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. So with the children of Israel having been under the penalty of death, Yahweh instead chose to come as a man and to die himself. So the death of the husband would free the wife from the law of the husband. No other man, not even a son, could do that in his place. Christ is the Son of God, insofar as he is also a man descended from God. But he is also God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's what incarnate means. The image of the person of the Father and the fullness of the divinity bodily. He is the Almighty God, and therefore he is able to be both the Father and the Son. He is able to transcend his law while also keeping his law, not breaking his law, in spite of our sins. So in that manner is Christ a propitiation for sin, as his death freed Israel from the sentence of death under the penalty of the law to which they were liable. In that same manner, Yahweh could also keep the unconditional promises which he made to Abraham, that his seed would become many nations and inherit the earth, as Jacob was the heir of that promise in spite of their breaking of the Sinai covenant. As Paul explained in Galatians chapter 3, the law, which came 420 years after, or maybe it was 450, does not annul the promises which were made long before the giving of the law. So we read in John chapter 10 that Christ did this of his own volition. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. 
and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. While Christ is the bridegroom, who will ultimately once again become wedded to the children of Israel, the marriage supper of the Lamb, described in Revelation chapter 19. While Christ is the bridegroom, neither can a man have his father's wife according to the law. This is found in Leviticus chapter 18 and also in chapter 20, where it says, And the man that lieth with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul admonished the assembly of Corinth to put out a man who had slept with his father's wife. Yet Christ, being Yahweh God incarnate, can once again transcend the law without breaking it, as he is the bridegroom of Israel. In that way, Yahweh also keeps the promise to Israel, which he made in Hosea. After he announced that Israel was being divorced, where he said, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness. But Christ is the bridegroom. Yahweh God must be Christ in order for Hosea to be true. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. The only way that all of these conditions are met as they are presented in all these scriptures is if Yahshua Christ is one and the same as Yahweh God the Father. No division of God into three persons or some imaginary trinity can satisfy the law and the prophets. Christ is the image of the person of God. He is not his own person. So now, referring to the propitiation which is in Christ, John makes another declaration in verse 3. And by this we know that we know him, if we would keep his commandments. And here John is illustrating yet another lesson which stands out in his gospel account. Where Christ himself had said, as it is found in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then a little further on in the chapter. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Then further on in John chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Using different language, Paul of Tarsus had also taught this in Romans chapter 6 and 7, that we should keep the law on account of the mercy we have received. 
that having been liberated from the bondage of sin, we should strive to sin no more. Then, in spite of the inevitability that men would sin, Paul concluded, So indeed the law is sacred, and the commandment sacred and just and good. John continues his assertion with a reference to those who would not keep the commandments. He saying that he knows him and not keeping his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. The Codex Sinaiticus has the end of verse 4 to read, he is a liar and he is not the truth of God. Apparently that is an error in transcription. Likewise, we read in John chapter 14, in reference to the commandments and the love of God, which results from keeping them, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. This happened when Jude, not Judas Iscariot, but Jude had asked a question of Christ. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Of course, Christ is the word made flesh, speaking of the Father as an example for men. Here John is basically asserting that one who rejects the commandments has actually rejected God, even if he claims to know God. And this we also see in Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave to you by Prince Yahshua. For this is the will of Yahweh, your sanctification. You are to abstain from fornication. Each of you are to know to possess one's own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in emotions of passion just as even the nations who do not know Yahweh. Not to be excessive and to be greedy in business with one's brother, since the prince is an avenger concerning all of these things, just as we also have forewarned and affirmed to you. For Yahweh has not called us to uncleanness, but in sanctification. And here's the pertinent verse. So then, he who is rejecting, meaning he who is rejecting those commandments of which Paul had just spoken, he who is rejecting rejects not man, but Yahweh, who is also giving his Holy Spirit to you. His Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit as some separate person on the Trinity. His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is the Holy Spirit. It's also the Spirit of Christ, because God and Christ are one, not three. So Paul also taught that those who do not keep the commandments have rejected God, so they do not know God, as John attests here. In many other places in his epistles, Paul forbade things which are also forbidden in the law. But the basis for John's statement here is also found in his gospel account, that he, saying that he knows him and not keeping his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
That's found where Christ argued with his adversaries in John chapter 8. Yahshua replied, If I would honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is the Father who is honoring me, whom you say that he is our God. Yet you do not know him, but I know him. And if I should say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his word. They claimed to know and to be of God, but they did not keep his word. So they were liars, as John states here. However, where Christ insisted that his disciples keep his commandments, it is also clear that he was referring to much more than merely the primary Ten Commandments, although he repeated those expressly during the time of his ministry. This should be realized from his discourse with a certain lawyer, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 22. Then the Pharisees, hearing that he had silenced the Sadducees, gathered together at that same place. And one from among them, a lawyer, making trial, questioned him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is thusly. You shall love him near to you as yourself. By these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If the second greatest commandment in the law is you shall love him near to you as yourself, or, as it is in the King James Version, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, <clears throat> then we must realize that the commandments which Christ expects Christians to keep are the commandments found throughout the law, and not merely the so-called Ten Commandments, which I prefer to refer to as the Ten Primary Commandments as they were first given to the people at Sinai, as it is recorded in Exodus chapter 20. That is because the commandment that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is not found in those ten commandments. It isn't even found in the book of Exodus. It is only found in Leviticus chapter 19, where it also defines what a neighbor is. And it says... Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. The children of thy people are thy neighbor. And thy neighbor is one of the children of thy people, according to the law which defines it. Since this is the second greatest commandment. And it's only in Leviticus. It's not even in Deuteronomy. If this is the second greatest commandment, then all of the other commandments in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy as well must also be considered by Christians. Where Paul of Tarsus had warned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 
that neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, now that's not in the Ten Commandments, nor homosexuals, that's not in the Ten Commandments, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious, and some of those things aren't in the Ten Commandments. Neither of those things, neither, or I should say no people who are committing those things, shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. Where Paul said that, he was also referring to commandments found throughout the law which prohibit such things. Where Christ said, keep my commandments, he being the word made flesh, is also the author of those commandments found in the law, as he is Yahweh God incarnate. Continuing with John chapter 2 at verse 5. But he whom would keep his word, truly the love of Yahweh is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, he purporting to abide in him, just as he had walked, thusly he is also obliged to walk. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Having love for God is first related to keeping his commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where we read a warning not to commit idolatry. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, Yahweh thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. The children of the fathers are not executed for their sins, but they certainly do suffer because of the sins of the father. They suffer in other ways, even if they do not suffer the penalty of the law. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. This is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then we read in chapter 7. Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Likewise, where John had said, just as he had walked, thusly he, meaning the man who would love Christ, is also obliged to walk. Referring to one who would keep the word of God and abide in his love. We read in Joshua chapter 22, where Joshua exhorted the tribes which remained east of the Jordan River. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, charged you to love Yahweh their God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cleave unto him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Love for God is connected, directly, connect, directly connected to keeping the commandments elsewhere in Deuteronomy as well as in the Psalms, in Daniel, and in Nehemiah. 
To walk with God is to keep his commandments. The children of Israel, having gone into captivity for not keeping the commandments, we read in Amos chapter 3, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Then in the next verse of Amos, we see a rhetorical question. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together unless they have agreement? Of course, they must have agreement in order to be able to walk together. So the children of Israel shall ultimately have to express their agreement with Yahweh their God by keeping his commandments. Ultimately, they will have no choice. Now John continues to speak of love in the context of the law. Beloved, I do not write to you a new commandment, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And here John must be referring to what was said in the preceding verses. Since in the verse which follows, he presents a new commandment. So this old commandment to which he refers must be the connection which he had made between having a love for God and the keeping of the commandments, which is found from the beginning, from the giving of the law at Sinai. So in verse 8, we read, Contrarywise, I write to you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness passes by and the true light already shines. John is alluding once again to his gospel and the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Christ in John chapter 1. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. These subsequent verses reveal that John is speaking in reference to the love which Christians should have for their brethren. Of course, in Romans chapter 9, Paul had defined brethren, where he prayed concerning my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, which is true to this day, since Christ had said that I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In John chapter 13, we first read this new commandment, where Christ is recorded as having told his disciples, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, men, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Where John said that this new commandment is true in him and in you. He seems to be alluding to something which Christ had said as he recorded it in John chapter 15 in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So John continues with the same theme. He purporting to be in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even now. 
the light is the light of Christ, as John recorded in chapter 12 of his gospel, where he had declared, I am where Christ, I should say, had declared, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul described the light brought into the world in Christ and associated it, as we'd have here in this commentary, he associated it with the first light of creation in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. And this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 light, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So by that, we know for certain that that light in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, that light which preceded the sun, moon, and stars, was the light of Christ come into the world at the incarnation of Yahweh God as Yahshua Christ. In regard to one who hates his brother, John continues with a comparison. He loving his brother abides in the light and there is no offense in him. This is the first time in this epistle that we see the verb agapeo. The noun form of the word agape is probably much more familiar to most Christians. The verb appears 20 times in John's epistle, in John's epistles, I'm sorry, and the noun perhaps 18 times, the first of which is earlier in this chapter, in verse 5. So this love for one's brethren, just from the frequent occurrences of these words, this love for one's brethren is a predominant theme in these epistles of John. We will hear about it here and in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and in 1 John chapter 5. Admonishing his readers, the apostle Peter exhorted them to the same thing where he wrote in chapter 1 of his first epistle that on account of their having had faith and hope in God, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Likewise, in chapter 12 of his epistle to the Romans, Paul exhorted his readers to have love without acting, abhorring wickedness, cleaving to goodness, brotherly love, affection towards one another, in honor, preferring one another with diligence, not hesitating, fervent in spirit, serving the prince, or the Lord, if you will. So, Peter, John, and Paul are all teaching the precise same thing here, here and in many other respects. Now John turns back to the contrary example. But he, hating his brother, is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This evokes the description of the Pharisees 
by Christ as the blind leading the blind, and they will all fall into a ditch. In a messianic prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of the affliction of Christ for her sins, we read in part, I'm sorry, the affliction of Israel for her sins. We read in part, the people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. John continues this theme describing brotherly love throughout his epistle. And in chapter 5, and not until chapter 5, he defines what it is to love one's brother, where he writes, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So it is evident that we are to love our brother with the love of God. So to keep the commandments is to love God, and we also exhibit our love for our brethren in that same manner by keeping the commandments of God. Now, of course, there are other things that we can do for our brethren in time of need, like pull them out of that ditch even on the Sabbath day. But that is superfluous. That is additional. That may help us store treasure in heaven. But the basic way that we exhibit love for our brethren is simply to keep the commandments. In Leviticus chapter six, chapter 19, we read, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So it is evident that this commandment in Leviticus is essentially the same as the commandment of Christ in John chapter 13, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Yet introducing this commandment, Christ had said to his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you. And his assertion is repeated here in the first epistle of John. We may only conjecture that while this commandment was always in Leviticus, perhaps it was new to the disciples of Christ if they had never heard it being taught in their synagogues. If the scribes were teaching the people, if they were teaching the people the law from Deuteronomy, this commandment is not even found in Deuteronomy. But there are, or I should say there is, support for this conjecture in the gospel. As Christ had always upbraided the Pharisees for not having mercy in judgment, for keeping all of these arcane laws on which they, most of which they invented themselves, on table manners and cleaning and the way vessels should be prepared, and how food should be prepared, yet they had no mercy in judgment. They had no love for their people. Now John describes why he had written these things. I write to you, 
children. Because your errors, or sins if you will, are remitted through his name. I write to you fathers, because you have known him from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you have prevailed over the evil one. Now, in the Codex Sinaiticus, there is a neuter form of the definite article, rather than a masculine form, whereby we may be compelled to write, because you have prevailed over the evil, rather than the evil one. But the difference is only the want of a single letter, and in verse 14, where the same phrase appears, the definite article is masculine in all but one of the other manuscripts. And it's masculine in this manuscript. So John repeats himself in verse 14 with only a slight variation. I have written to you, little children, because you know the Father. That's the variation. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of Yahweh abides in you. And that's also a slight variation. And you have prevailed over the evil one. Where John says, and you have prevailed over the evil one. The phrase translated as the evil one is ton poneron, which is a masculine form of the noun for evil accompanied by a masculine definite article. So we treat it as a masculine entity, the evil one. If the article were in the neuter form, we would have merely written, and you have prevailed over evil. So, while in verse 13, only the Codex Sinaiticus has the neuter form of the article, here, only the Codex Vaticanus has the neuter form. We would therefore esteem the proper readings to be those which the majority of manuscripts have in each instance, which is the masculine form of the article. Here and in verse 18, the word for little children is pahidion. Yet everywhere else in these epistles, on seven other occasions, the word for little children is a synonym, technion. I don't know if John really meant to distinguish anything by that difference. Both words are diminutive forms of words which primarily mean child. So in the plural, they describe little children because they are diminutive forms, or even infants. Elsewhere in these epistles, these three epistles of John, on nine occasions, the form tekna was used, which is a child. The words pahis and pahidion were sometimes used to describe young slaves, but that is not the context in which John uses the terms here. Perhaps Paul explains how one may prevail over the evil one. In Ephesians chapter 6, where he wrote, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
And likewise, James, in chapter 4 of his epistle, wrote similarly, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Evidently, John was persuaded that his readers were already equipped so that they would prevail if they were tried in that manner. Yet, in spite of that, he warns them further. In verse 15, Do not love society, nor the things in society. If one should love the society, the love of the Father is not in him. And for this same reason, the Apostle James wrote in chapter 4 of his epistle, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There James had likened those who would love the world or society to adulterers and adulteresses. Later in this epistle in 1 John chapter 5, the apostle professes that we know that we are from of Yahweh and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. That is precisely why John warns here not to love the things in society or the society right after he mentions that these Christians had overcome the evil one. Moving on to verse 16. Because all which is in society, the desire of the flesh, and the desire of the eyes, and the pretense of life, is not from of the Father, but is from of society. And the society passes on, and its desire, but he, doing the will of Yahweh, abides forever. Perhaps I may have elaborated on this passage even more than I shall. This evokes the words of Peter in the closing verses of chapter 1 of his first epistle, where he wrote, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of Yahweh endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. In Romans chapter 3, Paul refers to the guilt of the world. But his use of the word for world in that passage seems also to agree with Solomon's definition of the same word for world, cosmos, which is found in Wisdom chapter 19 that the whole world was represented by the four rows of stones in the garment of the high priest, which of course represented only the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So we read from that passage of Romans. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The children of Israel alone, having had the law, they are all the world which is guilty. The word of Yahweh abides forever. As we read in a similar passage in Isaiah chapter 40, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. But he doing the will of Yahweh also abides forever, as we read in Matthew chapter 19, 
where a certain inquiry was made of Christ. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good things shall I do, that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. In turn, Yahshua Christ entered into life. So he must have kept the commandments. And therefore, his propitiation for sin must not have violated or transgressed any of the laws of God. And the children of Israel had to be released from the law in a manner in which was consistent with the law. The son cannot have his father's wife. And the only man that could die for sin is the man who committed it. Christ died for a different reason. Because he was the husband freeing the wife from the law of the husband. As Paul explained. And why Trinitarians cannot understand that simple concept of Scripture is an absolute mystery because they violate it and they try to make God a hypocrite and claim that God broke his laws, which are what they are doing in effect, if they think Christ could die for someone else's sin or if they think that perhaps he could have his father's wife. He expects us to keep the commandments. He himself better be keeping the commandments, and he does. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.